0: Hello, you're listening to the MyCare Champion Cast. I'm your host, Lucisha Matero of the Michigan Health and Hospital Association. Each month, we invite industry experts and thought leaders to discuss relevant healthcare issues. Join us as we explore key topics that affect Michigan hospitals, health systems, and the health of our communities. Hi, you're listening to the MyCare Champion Cast. Joining me today is Wright Lassiter III, who is president and CEO of Henry Ford Health. Wright oversees the seven billion dollar integrated health system comprised of six hospitals, a health plan, and a wide range of ambulatory, retail, and other health services. Henry Ford Health has more than two hundred and fifty locations across Michigan and thirty three thousand employees. Lassiter joined Henry Ford Health in twenty fourteen and assumed the role of president and CEO in twenty sixteen. He has a master's degree in healthcare administration and graduated number one in his class from Indiana University. Today, we're lucky enough to have him on the show to talk about the social determinants of health, which is an important continuation of our conversations around health equity. Wright, welcome to the show and thank you so much for being here.
1: Lucy, it's great to be with you.
0: So before we jump into today's topic, do you mind, it's kind of a theme that we've been following for the last few years with our guests, can you give us an update on how things are going in terms of COVID at uh, Henry Ford Health?
1: Yeah, so I would say that uh, we're excited about the fact that um, uh, there is a low, uh, and that we're hoping the low is not just temporary, but becomes uh, permanent. Um, you know, currently we have... Uh, uh, less than 50 patients across our system, actually less than 40 patients across our system um, uh, who are suffering from, uh, from uh, COVID-19 complications. And so the great news is um, it provides a bit of breathing room for our, our staff and physicians who have been working like uh, soldiers on the front line for more than two years. Uh, and we're hopeful that, uh, that no new variants uh, will, will change that. Um, so, so uh, it's um, the, the news is good related to, to COVID nineteen and uh, inpatient hospitalization, uh, use of ventilators, critical care, uh, and the like. But I, I would just note for for your listeners that um, anytime I talk about this, um, I like to say that uh, while while there's a calm currently, um, we still know that there is significant strife amongst the healthcare industry because mm-hmm. um, our team members have have suffered um, mightily, uh, but they've also been heroic over the last two years. And so, so we're pleased about the lull in, uh, in volume, but we also know that the gas tanks of our team members uh, are extremely low given the, the, the heroic efforts that they've uh, put in over the last two years.
0: Right, and what are some of the best ways we can support our healthcare workers? I think that's such an important question, and how can we support them and also prepare, or I guess, be ahead of any upcoming waves of COVID if there is a new variant? Say,
1: well, you know, I'd start off with something that uh, that for maybe many of us, our mothers taught us when we were very young. Uh, to say thank you, right? Continue to say thank you to every healthcare hero that you know uh, in your family, in your neighborhood, at your church. And uh, your social functions, uh, at your kids' schools, wherever that that may be, you know. Mm-hmm. First, I would just say tell people thank you because those those two words go a long way. And uh, and while you know many people um, understand that the community um, is grateful to the healthcare uh, sector for what for what uh, we've done over the last couple of years, saying thank you never hurt. So I start off with that. Mm-hmm. Um, secondly, as a healthcare leader, I think that we have to acknowledge that. Um, Our team members need more emotional support than they've ever needed, and not all of our team members are good at asking for help. And so we've got to be even more proactive um, to remove barriers, to remove stigmas, to remove the hesitancy that exists in our entire society Mm -hmm. around um, behavioral health support, mental health support, uh, psychological support. and so our organization, like I'm sure many, have doubled or tripled the, the amount of resources we put into employee assistance programs and counseling mm-hmm. and support for our team members. And so that's really, really critical. And we need to continue to do that. Um, I think we also need to encourage uh, the folks in our communities and our families, uh, et cetera, uh, to not give up on healthcare. care. Um, mm-hmm. you, know, you hear about the great resignation and you hear about um, many individuals who might have either just joined our, our, our field or have been in our field for decades, who are now saying, nah, maybe I don't want to do this anymore, or maybe right. this isn't what I thought it would be." And so, I would continue to encourage people to take up healthcare, whether it's mm-hmm. nursing, pharmacy, social work, um, physicians, etc. I would continue to uh, encourage individuals to do that because the healthcare pipeline is not sufficient currently to deal with all the challenges that we have. Uh, as a society. And so that's really, really critically uh, important as well. And then the last, the last thing I would just say is to offer a bit of patience and grace um, mm. to our fellow human beings um, um, as as we're all trying to recover from an extremely stressful two plus years. And so right. those are my uh, a few tidbits for me
0: on that point. Right. No, those are great tips and be kind inside and outside of the hospital, right? (laughs) Yes, yes. Well, I'd also be remiss if I didn't mention the new name, Henry Ford Health, previously Henry Ford Health System. Can you share what kind of drove that rebrand?
1: So as it relates to Henry Ford Health, uh, we've been talking for a number of years about um, a couple of points. First, uh, how do we ensure that the brand uh, of Henry Ford, which has been around for a hundred plus years. How do we ensure that that brand gets all of the equity, all of the recognition, all of the consumer preference uh, that possibly could get? Number one. Uh, Number two, how do we ensure that we constantly keep a tight connection between the purpose of the organization, its mission and its vision and values, with the personal purpose of the 33 plus thousand individuals that come to work each day. Um, and then lastly, um particularly as it relates to the COVID-19 pandemic, we've been talking as a leadership team uh, significantly about what are ways that we can try to infuse energy, passion, mm-hmm. um, purpose uh, back into both uh, workforce who has been beleaguered uh, as it relates to leaning into the pandemic and and um, serving our community, as well as then make that connection with patients and and other key stakeholders who are big fans of, of our organization, and frankly maybe those who who are not fans of our organization because they haven't they haven't utilized us, but we'd love for them to be fans of our organization. Right, um, and so. Um, You know, it was a conversation, frankly, that we've had off and on actually for more than three years. But um, we really got focused uh, about um, a little over a year ago around it's time for us to um, to think about how do we modernize, contemporize and and sort of create this this sense of energy. And so and so for a lot of folks, what I say is, you know, it looks like if you're just thinking about marketing or branding, or advertising, you know, it looks like a relatively small change—a three—a four-word name down to a three-word name, taking system off. But it's really much more about that. It's much more of emphasizing the the partnership that's necessary to achieve health uh, between an organization like ours that has a lot of brick and mortar and a lot of humanity and um, two plus million people that we touch on an annual basis. So how do we do a better job of what our ultimate goal is, which is to support the creation and the sustenance of health in the communities we serve. Mm-hmm. And so we, we really believed, and we got a lot of consumer feedback on this, that the word system is is this sort of formal, it creates this formality that's about brick and mortar. That's about a, a building. It's about four walls. And health is about so much more than that. I mean, we're having a conversation here today about social determinants of health, it, which is a really critical uh uh, case in point, which mm-hmm. is you don't solve issues of health equity, generally speaking, in four walls of a hospital. You solve it, it with community partnerships. You solve it in partnerships with with individuals who are seeking to be their best self. Mm-hmm. And so, and so, our, the Henry Ford Health concept was an embodiment of that. Um, and then it also was uh, an opportunity for us to create energy between our caregivers, team members, and and patience around this notion of we are Henry, I am Henry. And, and as we began, you know, looking at various ways to sort of tell this story, um, you know, that the, the five the five letters that make up the word Henry, you know, for us, it's not about a person, right? You know, people think, you know, we're named after Henry Ford. And so people think, well, this is about that. It's really not about that person. It's about the spirit that, uh, that we are as, our, as relentless advocates of making the impossible possible, right? And so, and so we really believe that this, um, this journey, and, so, and so I don't call it a campaign, I call it a journey, the Henry Ford Health journey, is really about um, creating this connection to stories, about stories of triumph, stories of perseverance, studies of cu- uh, uh, stories of cure. Um, you know, in some cases, um, stories that, that didn't end the way we all would like them to end. But there is a story to be written about that, right, about what came out of that process. And so, and so for us, um, the, the change to Henry Ford Health is, is not just a marketing campaign or a branding campaign or an advertising campaign. It's really about creating an ethos um, that, that really gets to the heart of the, the, the values of our organization, what we stand for and what we're trying to accomplish on behalf of the communities we serve.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Well, congratulations to you. It sounds like you guys have a really strong and clear vision, and I can appreciate that from the communication standpoint. Um, And I did see a lot of of posts on social media, and it looks like people are really excited about the rebrand. And I think it just says a lot about Henry Ford Health, just the vision behind it and the values that you do carry. And um, that lends itself nicely to today's conversation of, of health equity, as you mentioned Um, And I think it's good if we just get started talking about what are the social determinants of health. In a previous episode, I spoke with Dr. Renee Kennedy of the Michigan Public Health Institute, uh, Mm -hmm. and she described social determinants of health as where we live, learn, play, and pray. And I think work was in there as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you take some time just to elaborate on what, what that means and why social determinants of health matter so much?
1: Yeah, and so I think that that uh, that description that you you just provided is um, is very illustrative. Um, I would probably describe it, you know, somewhat similar and say, you know, social determinants are um, are social are the social conditions um, in which people live their lives that impact um, the health of the community that they that they exist in. Um, and so it's 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 things that you can see, like you know race and ethnicity or things you can hear like language mm-hmm. um, it's it is um, socioeconomic status uh, it is education status um, it's their ability to to transport themselves or be transported um, uh, from uh, the places they need to go um, it is you know social determinants get into access to um, to things that allow them to live their lives well like Healthy food, mm-hmm. uh, clean drinking water, um, and, and so when you think about social determinants, it, it really is—you know—what are all those manifestations that that uh, that uh, serve your current condition in life that um, that have an impact on your ability either to live your best life in the in the healthiest way possible or to have challenges to uh, to be able to live that best life Mm -hmm. uh, and challenges that may end up causing um, differences in the expression of of chronic disease, um, for instance. Um, So um, so that's how I would that's how I would I would uh, sort of tackle, you know, what is um, social determinants.
0: Yeah, that background is, is really helpful, and I think one of the biggest takeaways we can gain from talking about the social determinants of health is that a person's health and life expectancy in our state and country is often determined by environmental factors, and in order for us to achieve better health out- outcomes across populations, we, we really have to take that into consideration.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely, You know, and it, it is, frankly, the differences in social determinants that creates the issues that, that health systems, that public health departments, that, that other community partners deal with when you think about healthcare care disparities. Mm-hmm. When, you, when you look at, um, you know, before uh, coming to, to Michigan, I lived in, um, in Northern California and led a public health system that served um, Oakland and surrounding areas. And I was fascinated shortly after my arrival to read a report that talked about the differences in health and uh, life expectancy mm-hmm. for folks who lived in flatlands versus the hills, hmm. and the hills were considered, you know, the places of the affluent, um, and the flatlands were considered the places of of vulnerable populations, and and there were lots of reasons for that, but um, and, and we'll talk about some of those uh, things here uh, in Michigan, but it, it just really shocked me as a relative newcomer to that part of the country for um, a public health department to say, you know what, if you live in the flatlands, you will live 25 years on average less than if you live in the hills. Mm-hmm. And and you heard that sort of thought and you thought, well, wait a minute, that can't be true. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you see some of those stark differences, you know, across our country, unfortunately. And so it is, so these differences in social determinants that, that causes the kinds of Um, really concerning, uh, disparities that, that we deal with, uh, you know, here in the state of Michigan, certainly in Detroit, if you think about Flint, um, with the challenges around just access to clean water for a period of time when those residents were dealing with, with, with water that was not healthy, um, and, and all in the decades of impact that will have, right? And so, and so, you know, you know, social determinants cross race, they cross class, they cross ethnicities. Um, um, They will cross educational opportunities, um, et cetera.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Those are great examples. And I think people start to listen when you describe the social determinants of health as having an impact on on their community and Mm -hmm. hear compelling statistics like the fact that it affects infant mortality. I mean, when people hear that, they want to learn more and they want to talk about it. And uh, I'm curious what. What do we know about the social determinants of health in Michigan specifically?
1: Well, you know, I think um, <clears throat> um, probably one of the best examples of what we know is um, something called uh, the data that comes out in the United Way's ALICE report, right? And so the ALICE report, um, for those who aren't aren't familiar with it, it, um, it, it stands for um, Asset Limited Income Constrained Employed. And so it's a report that the uh, the United Way puts out on a regular basis to examine what is the prevalence in the state of Michigan of families who struggle to afford basic needs. Mm -hmm. Um, And in one of their recent reports, um, their data suggested that um, almost 1.7 million households in Michigan, which they estimate to be about 40 percent of the population,
0: Mm.
1: couldn't afford the basic elements of that household needed for success, such as food, housing, health care, childcare, transportation, and technology. And that report came out just before the the uh, first cases uh, of COVID hit. Um, I haven't seen the report since uh, mm-hmm. since that time as of yet I think the next report's coming out very shortly. And and what you can imagine is that given the both the health and economic uh, uh, challenges that the state of Michigan and the entire country faced uh, during this global pandemic, uh, you would expect that number, frankly, to be worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you think about the Great Resignation and people leaving, quote unquote, leaving jobs either because the job no longer existed or because they changed lifestyle, you you would imagine that 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 um, um, that that continues. Um, you know, as you think about. The current rise in inflation that's hitting the entire country, um, uh, states like Michigan that have 43 percent in that study of its of its households uh, being income constrained and not able to meet its basic household needs you can only imagine that, that those numbers have likely risen. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you think about the disparate impact that COVID has had on particularly um, communities of color in the state of Michigan, but not just in the state of Michigan, um, you would imagine that in vulnerable populations, uh, those statistics are frankly even more glaring.
0: Yeah, the pandemic has definitely amplified that and, and I think brought the conversation of health equity to the forefront. Right. So as as the president and CEO of of a major health system, how would you say the social determinants of health impact the way Henry Ford Health uh, delivers care?
1: You know, so, uh, you know, one of the things that I'm proud of, and this began long, long, long before uh, I arrived here um, to lead our organization, um, we've had a penchant for um, serving the safety net and Mm -hmm. serving populations that were vulnerable. And while we have facilities in multiple parts of the communities that we serve, um, many of our of our assets are concentrated in in urban communities and communities of vulnerable populations. Um, And so, you know, we honestly, um, you know, one of the things that uh, in an interesting uh, conversation I've had with team members at times, I've said, you know, if we really don't want to focus on issues of health equity and disparities, then we should move all of our assets to different parts of the state because, we have no choice. If we if, if that wasn't our mission and vision, we'd have to we'd have to move our assets. Um right. and so our mission and vision certainly is to serve. Um you know, but I would I would sort of start off by saying that um you know some of the most vexing issues that we face in our communities are uh one one issue that you mentioned earlier, uh maternal and infant mortality, mm-hmm. um uh blood pressure control in vulnerable populations. Um uh, the need for comprehensive diabetes care, uh, because of the prevalence of diabetes in so many of the populations that we serve, um, and and frankly, um, a significant use of um, of emergency services because uh, the primary care fabric um, isn't deep or wide enough um, for many for many parts of the community that we serve. And so when you ask the question, so how does it impact us? I would say, you know, pretty dramatically, mm-hmm. we, we acknowledge that if we don't think about health equity, if we don't think about meeting people where they are, when they when they either seek services for us or as we assess community and try to reach out to the community, if we're not looking at that from a lens of social determinants and health equity, you know, frankly, we'll do a disservice. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one of the big challenges when you think about um, serving uh, vulnerable populations and, and populations that have significant needs is that you have to really understand what the needs are.
0: Right. And if
1: we approach every person as if their needs are, are somewhat homogenous, what ends up happening is, you know, for that small population that your set of interventions are perfectly matched for, mm-hmm. they, will, they will get what they need. Right. But for everyone else, we will not meet their needs. And so whatever, whatever challenge we're trying to help them overcome, we likely will be ineffective uh, because our interventions aren't tailored to the specific sets of needs that they bring forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for us, we spend a lot of time trying to understand what are the specific needs, mm-hmm. um, what makes that person unique, what are their, what's their unique set of circumstances that then might cause us to need to respond in a way that's tailored to, to, to that population. And I think for a long time, and, and, and one of the things that has me excited about this, you know, sort of increased fervor across the nation around health equity and disparities is that what it's really helping people acknowledge is that it's not that we necessarily were doing something wrong, it's just that we were functioning in a vacuum. We didn't fully understand Mm-hmm. And, in, in, and frankly, in almost every other sector outside of healthcare care, uh, people that deliver products and services understand their consumers extremely well. Mm-hmm. They understand their buying habits, they understand their household needs, they understand so much about their consumer that they're tailoring their product or their service you know, in our case, intervention, but in their case, a product or service, to, to what's going to meet the need for that individual. And historically, in healthcare, we've just not done that. We've not been that sophisticated. We've, we've had a big heart, and we've had a lot of energy, and we've put a lot of uh, that heart and energy toward doing a thing. And oftentimes, we sort of presume that you know, you know like if you're out in a farm, like every that every cow's brown or cow's black or whatever, and and doesn't have any unique needs. And and honestly, you know, for people that have kids, what I will say is. um, You know, it's sort of like if you have multiple kids in your household, they have different needs. And so they need different things from their parents. And if you and if you parent all four kids, if you have four kids the same exact way, unfortunately, your four kids likely won't might not be their best selves because they need something different. You know, some kids need tough love. Some kids need just need a pat on the back. Some kids need a hug. Some kids (laughs) need space. And. And if the kid that needs space gets a hug all the time, they're likely not going to be their best self. You know, if the person, the kid who really needs a kick, um, and some tough love, only gets a hug, they're probably going to underachieve, right? And so it's, it's that sort of setting in, in healthcare.
0: Yeah. yeah, that's that's a great example, a way to compare it. And you brought up fervor, and I think people entering the positive of this is that people entering the healthcare workforce are hearing these conversations. And I think especially younger generations are really eager to make change and be mm-hmm. a part of addressing health inequities. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm curious what your advice would be to those in our hospitals and health systems, maybe those that, that are just entering, um, who want to be more conscious and intentional about how they provide care to patients.
1: Yeah, so I would start off with, you know, uh, um, I would love to say every healthcare organization, and I hope the answer is every, but I'll say most. Um, are really focused on trying to provide their caregivers and team members with tools that they need to to do this better, and I would just say that you start off with 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 cultural competence training, mm-hmm. right? Um, just being able to understand, um, and so it you know it doesn't mean that you that that um, we all you know get brought up and get trained with with our own set of of understanding about our fellow human beings. And the reality is without specific cultural competence training, we all are ineffective mm-hmm. at at understanding the needs of broader populations, particularly those that we have less less familiarity with. And so I would really start off with, it's really important to get cultural competence training, however your organization provides that. And my hope is that that your organization provides. And if someone's listening to this, uh, when this airs and if their organization doesn't provide it, maybe you should find an organization that does provide cultural competence training. Cause that gives you a sense that that organization is more serious about, about trying to equip their team members with, with the tools they need. Mm-hmm. Um, secondly, I would say beyond cultural competence, um, unconscious bias training. So, um, it, I was exposed to, to the concept of, of unconscious bias a few years ago and, And if the more you read, and understand about it, it just, again, helps us all acknowledge that, you know, none of us as human beings are perfect. Um, And at times, even with the the best intentioned individuals, we may hold um, uh, biases that we that aren't on the surface Mm -hmm. that impact our ability to do the best job on behalf of others. Right. And so a combination of sort of the traditional cultural competence training and unconscious bias training in my mind are two uh, amazing toolkits uh, um, that would allow uh, most team members to, to be their best self and not only be their best self, but then to really be able to understand others in a way that allows us to help intervene in whatever way we are providing care, service, et cetera. Um, you know, and then the, then maybe the last thing I would say about what team members in the healthcare space, um, should do is, um, is look at the data. Mm -hmm. I mean, as I mentioned previously about other industries and how well they know their, their consumers or their targets, right? Their customers, um, historically we haven't had that granular of data. And so, um, some of the most humbling times, um, for me, um, in this long journey that I've been on with, 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 uh, with two organizations in particular throughout the last, you know, almost 20 years of my career, as we've gotten very serious about, about healthcare disparities and health equity, mm-hmm. what I've really learned is that oftentimes we believe we're doing our best job until we begin to segregate the data in a way that helps us understand the unique characteristics of populations we serve. Mm-hmm. And then we begin to sort of say, hey, we we're ta- we have been taking sort of this cookie cutter approach and sort of presuming that, you know, the four the four children all have the same needs when when they don't. Um, and so uh, I think that ask for data, ask for data that really allows you to sort of understand, you know, if you're working in an emergency department, you know, are there differences in outcomes based upon um, race, ethnicity, language, gender, Um or based upon other, or characteristics whatever might be unique and special to the population you serve. And so, you know, everything is not about, everything is not always about race. Everything's not always about ethnicity. Sometimes it's about language. Um, sometimes it's about other cultural, uh, um, uh, other cultural tenets. Sometimes it's, it's about things that are not related to any, any, any one of those. But, but, um, but if you never segregate the data in a way that allows you to say, okay, here is, here are the, unique characteristics of population X, and as a result of those unique characteristics, our intervention really ought to be Y. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think in most cases, we have all the intervention sets that we need. Oftentimes the problem is we're applying the wrong tool to the problem, right? right. The wrong solution to, to, the, to the problem set. And so when we better understand the problem set, we generally have solutions to solve it. Um, right. Now, then the bigger question sometimes is, well, there's too many problems to solve, you know, yeah. and sort of like world peace or world hunger. You can't solve them all. And so sometimes the biggest challenge we face is not what's the solution or even how to apply it. It is. But we've got so many problems. Which ones are we going to focus on? Because you can't mm-hmm. focus on everything. Right. Mm-hmm. So.
0: That reminds me of a, of, of a point Dr. Kennedy brought up, um, and that is with health equity. it's It can't just be a one-size-fits-all approach. Uh, it's not enough just to know the social determinants of health. You have to really examine um, your specific patient populations and, and determine an approach and processes that cater to those patients. Um, and on the other side of the coin, I'm curious what advice you would give to a patient um, to better advocate for themselves knowing the social de- determinants of health and and you know, their external environment that may influence how they deliver or they receive and uh, need care?
1: Yeah, so, the, you know, the first thing that I would say, um, Uzi, is um, I think it's really important for patients to understand that they are in control. Mm-hmm. They're, they're in control of their health care, um, which means that, um, that if you're in control, you have to advocate and communicate um, as effectively as you can. You know, at times uh, there's certainly, I I understand the barriers to, uh, you know, to communication uh, in different cultures, uh, different age groups, um, but it's really important for for patients to really acknowledge that uh, that they're in control. And so that means that they have to tell the uh, providers that they're encountering what's going on, um, what's working, what's not working. Um, And sometimes that doesn't fully happen. Um, they have to make sure that they that they let the care team know when they believe their needs are not being met and why so the team can attempt to address the concern um, and then I think that it's important you know the 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 white coat syndrome is is a important bond that has lasted in our country for a long time and that's the the bond the connection between an individual patient and their physician. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, the view was, you know, whatever the physician said, you know, was right. Whatever the physician said, I do. Um, and sometimes you need to say to, to that individual, I really not, I don't feel like I'm, I'm being heard um, or I don't feel like my needs are being met. And ultimately, if you really get to a place where you don't think that that's happening, then you should change your provider to someone who you believe understands you better and is is able to reflect and respond to your unique needs. Mm -hmm. And then I would just say to to the listeners, um, we have room in Henry Ford Health. And so (laughs) if you you believe that uh, your provider isn't uh, meeting those needs, uh, I'm sure we can find you a provider in our system who will do that and hopefully do that um, to your expectations and beyond.
0: Right, absolutely. Well, that was a great answer, and, and we appreciate you so much for being on the podcast today. Um, you provided some really valuable insight on a very important topic that we hope to continue exploring. So, um, thank you for being here.
1: Thanks, Susie. My pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to the My Care Champion Cast. To learn more or get involved, visit mycarematters.org. That's MICarematters.org.